This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. I'm Alex Entner. Amanda Lotz is away this week. For this episode, I went to New York City to interview Barry Grove, the executive producer of the Manhattan Theater Club. Barry has been with MTC for 43 years, working in partnership with artistic director Lynn Meadows. Manhattan Theater Club is a not-for-profit theater producer in New York City. It owns the Samuel J. Friedman Theater, a 650-seat Broadway stage where they produce three shows per year. They also program two stages in the basement of the New York City Center, three shows in Stage 1, a 300-seat proscenium stage, and two shows in Stage 2, a configurable studio space with 150 seats. Throughout the company's history, their productions have won many Tonys, and the plays they produced have won Pulitzers. This year, their production of August Wilson's Jitney won the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Play, and their production of The Little Foxes won Tonys for Jane Greenwood's costume design and Cynthia Nixon's performance as Birdie. Barry Grove, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you, Alex. It's a pleasure to be here. So, first of all, tell me a little bit um, about once a show is programmed onto the schedule. Tell me a little bit about what you do in terms of, you know, how you piece to piece the show together financially with the budgeting and marketing and things so like that. So the Manhattan Theater Club is a not-for-profit organization. Of course. And so we approach this a little bit differently than the way a commercial theater would, because commercial theater is literally doing one play at a time or one musical at a time, one show at a time. And they would build a budget for it, and then they'd either have the money to do it or not. A not-for-profit institution is an ongoing place with a subscription season. We have three theaters. Our Broadway theater here called the Samuel J. Friedman Theater is a 650-seat theater. And it does three plays a year, or three shows a year, fall, winter, and spring. Mm-hmm. So there's a budget for the whole year that's made the spring before, and of which course. the board would approve. And so the, the show coming in to that uh, slot, let's say, mm-hmm. already has some degree of security in that we know there's a subscription audience and a donor audience for the play. In part, that's maybe 30 to 40% of the audience. Mm-hmm. And that, in our case, is about 20,000 subscribers and donors. And then we know that we have uh, two ongoing programs for young people, mm-hmm. one an in-the-schools program with the high schools, and we serve about 3,000 students a year through our education program here in mm-hmm. the greater New York area. But um, equally important, we have a program for young adults. So our 30 under 30 program allows people to buy tickets for $30 to anything we do if they're under 30 years old. Yeah, I've taken advantage of that. Okay. <laughs> and that's terrific. It's a kind of bookend, if you will, mm-hmm. to the subscription program. So there's almost 18,000 active members of the 30 under 30 oh, wow. program. And then the, the big biggest chunk would be the single ticket buyers many of whom are multi-buyers. That is to say they buy with us semi-regularly. They're uh, customers we can rely on even if they don't have a formal subscription. And Mm -hmm. so we usually are in contact with them by email. We have over 100,000 people in that group. Mm -hmm. So we begin to think once Lynn has programmed a play about reaching an audience Mm -hmm. through those different components, direct mail, television advertising, print, uh, publications, mm-hmm. sometimes radio, 
often digital and social media. Right. Um, and so that's a piece of what we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. Then the second piece of what we're thinking about is obviously what is it going to cost? And a chunk of that is the physical production and the balance of that would be the, the costs related to the company. Are we bringing people from out of town or out of the country? Mm-hmm. Travel, housing, all those kinds of issues. Um, we are as a not-for-profit theater on Broadway. That's the theater we're talking about now, right? The Freedman Theater. The Freedman Theater. So we're a member of LORT. That stands for the League of Resident Theaters, Mm L-O-R-T. That's the nonprofit association of the 75 largest theaters across the country. So Mm -hmm. for listeners in other parts of the country, that would be theaters like the Guthrie in Minneapolis, Mm -hmm. the Center Theater Group in L.A., the uh, ACT in San Francisco, places like that. Mm -hmm. And there are three of us here in New York, soon to be four. Manhattan Theater Club right. is joined by the Roundabout and Lincoln Center. And, and Second Stage is about to join you guys. That's exactly right. Um, and so there are nonprofit contracts for the creative unions. Mm-hmm. Actors' Equity that represents the actors and the stage managers. Um, SDC, which is the stage directors and choreographers. And USA, which is the designers. Mm-hmm. And then we, as a standalone institution, have uh, relationships uh, with 11 other backstage and front of house unions like the stagehands and the ticket takers and the, all of that. And so we know essentially what the labor costs, if you will, were going to be. But then additionally, um, we look at what the physical way of representing the show is. And that's, you know, different from the olden days when everything was a box set. And right, it, right. It was either a, a living room or somebody's kitchen or something. <laughs> now that writers are much more cinematic, often you have moving parts to the scenery. Um, you may have a turntable. You may have automation that makes scenery move around. Mm-hmm. Now, in the last two, that isn't true. We just have two major nominations and one win for Jitney as Best Revival right. in, a, in a static set, mm-hmm. meaning that the set was rather elaborate, but it didn't have to move. And yeah. again, in the case of Little Foxes... It's also a static set. It's a static living room of the house. Yeah. Right. Whereas now we're about to do The Prince of Broadway, a mm-hmm. musical celebration of the extraordinary career of Hal Prince, and there we're trying to realize show-stopping moments from 30 productions right. over a long span of time, and that becomes more complicated. And so you begin to try and figure out what that's going to be. And when you add those two things together, they don't add up, mm-hmm. because in taking these kinds of risks and doing this kind of work and running this kind of institution, we rely heavily on the kindness of friends, of donors. So whether it's a board of directors, which is both enormously helpful and very generous, or private patrons, Mm -hmm. corporations, foundations, and city, state, and federal government, um, that makes up almost 40 to 45% of the budget. Mm And so that's an ongoing process. Right. It's, occasionally, when you have a very large show, you need to raise additional special funds for that mm-hmm. one show. But mostly, what we're trying to do is raise funds for the season. Mm-hmm. And, and keep it within that, the that, confines that's of the right. season. That's exactly right. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the work you do. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the shows I saw in preparation for this was Cost of Living. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, it struck me as it was, it was a challenging but worthwhile piece of theater. So how do you kind of work to get an audience that to go to a play that might be, you know, a little more challenging than kind of standard fare that, like, 
you know, normal kind of tourist sort of things versus sure. like going to a bit more of a challenging sort of play? Well, first of all, you know, New York is the theater capital of the world. Of course. There's a lot of people here who love the theater and go to mm-hmm. it regularly, not just to Broadway, but to off-Broadway of and off-off-Broadway. And so there's a large, uh, intelligent audience, I think, that cares about this kind of work. Um, subscribers and donors have been with us over a period of time, and so that's also a connection that makes it um, a little easier to reach Right, out so you kind them. of gain their trust yeah, over time. That's right. And we have a, what we call a friends and family mailing list. By mailing list, that could be social, it could be digital, mm-hmm. it could be email, um, but we'll be reaching out to audiences like that. And then every play is about something, and it right. often has its own special constituency, which mm-hmm. isn't to say we don't want everyone welcome at everything we do, but mm-hmm. in the case of... Jitney, we're also paying special attention to the African-American community. In the case of the cost of living, the physically challenged and disabled community uh, requires our special outreach to Mm -hmm. say this is a play about all of us, and it's a play about you specifically, and we hope you will come and feel welcome. Mm -hmm. So we begin to try and build coalitions with other groups that care about um, these causes or these issues, Mm -hmm. and and make sure early enough on that they know about them, right. but they're also beyond knowing about them that they feel welcome to be part of them. Um, could something, you know, I was thinking about Little Foxes, which is the other show I mm-hmm. saw in preparation for this, and did casting play a role in kind of helping to sell that with having stars like Laura Linney and Cynthia Nixon? Of course, they're extraordinarily talented people mm-hmm. as well as being giant stars in you know television and film right. and uh, there's no question that that kind of presence itself is is a big draw but Lynn and her casting team are casting each of these shows with an eye to excellence right. and so the more you can do to put first rate actors on the stage whether they're stars or not mm-hmm. helps to sell a show I okay. think so you don't case. necessarily cast based on the idea of selling as much as you cast put the best people for the role on the stage a little of both okay. I mean obviously um, if you can have um, a relationship with a star uh, that really helps right. um, and so these are people that we've worked with over a long arc of time Laura Linney did some of her first work out of Juilliard with us Cynthia right. Nixon early on you know got mm-hmm. involved um, so we try and think of it even though it's not a permanent repertory company as a family of artists right. who feel comfortable and welcome to come back more than once mm-hmm. So kind of building not only a community with your audience, but also with your talent as exactly. well. Exactly. Yeah. Sarah Jessica Parker, who did a piece off-Broadway here not too long ago, started mm-hmm. working with us when she was 12 and has done you know a show every few years mm-hmm. after that. Each of these artists, Mary Louise Parker, who starred um, in the first play of our Broadway season this year, mm-hmm. Heisenberg, is someone, again, who we've had a long, long relationship with. That's great. Um, so how do you define success for a commercial producer? See, it kind of is making back your money. Right. But as a not-profit, how do you define success for a piece of theater? First and foremost, is it satisfying to an audience? Um, is it artistically meaningful? Has it accomplished what it's set out to do? How does the critical community respond to the work? Mm-hmm. But more than the critical community, even, you know, how does the audience respond to the work? 
And then, of course, you look at secondary things like award nominations and awards. This was an amazing season for MTC. Not only were there 13 Tony nominations and three wins, including Best Revival, for uh, our Broadway season, but every single play, including the Stage 1 and Stage 2 productions, received at least one nomination for everything we did. Congratulations. So that's a big (laughs) endorsement. It's not in and of itself the only defining uh, reason to do something, but it's corroborating what we already hope and believe, which is that the work is engaging and interesting to the audience that comes to see it. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are your biggest challenges that you face as a not-profit producer? Okay, so as I said before, 45 to 50 percent, 40 to 50 percent of the budget has to come from fundraising. And unlike England, where the National Trust and the subsidy to the major British nonprofit theaters can be upwards of 50, 60 percent of the budget, the combined city, state, and federal funds for operating, not for capital, are less than one percent. So it really depends on the generosity of Americans of all stripes to, uh, to make this work. And mm-hmm. so every year we have to raise 10, 11, 12 million dollars in, in fundraising to make it work. That's a big challenge. And then obviously there are 41, soon to be 42 Broadway theaters. Mm-hmm. They're all filled most of the year now. That wasn't right. true 10 or 15 years ago. There used to be like sort of dead periods around January, February, That's right. and September, and over, October. Exactly right. And now they're full. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of competition for single tickets, whether you are a nonprofit or for-profit, you're competing essentially in the same marketplace. Mm-hmm. You're going for the same people going to the show. Some of the same people Some. anyway. Yeah, exactly. So how is the world of not-profit producing for Broadway and off-Broadway changed over the course of your tenure here at a Manhattan Theater Club? Well, first of all, we're in it, which wasn't the case at the beginning. So, right. you know, 42 years ago, we were an off-off-Broadway theater. Let's which is it. less than 100 seats, I That's believe. That's right. And the union contracts are very simple. It's mm-hmm. basically one or two unions. Originally, they were looking for reimbursement of expenses. Our original budget when I was here in 1975 was $200,000 a wow. year. From there to salaries off Broadway with and uh, stage one and stage two. two. That's right, with hundred to four hundred ninety-nine seat theaters. Mm-hmm. And then in two thousand and three, we opened our Broadway space. Right. It's a beautiful space. It really Thank is. Thank you. So anything in what's called the Broadway box, basically mm-hmm. around Times Square, with more than five hundred seats, is Broadway. Right. And so for starters, it's just much more complicated with that many more unions, with that many more seats, with that much bigger budget. Our budgets today tend to be uh, annually between 25 and $30 million. Mm-hmm. That's a lot more money than $200,000 right, right. was, and so that's complicated. Mm-hmm. And the world has changed digitally, right? So right. we now have so many other ways to entertain ourselves mm-hmm. and to listen, podcasts, oh. uh, radio, television, film, games, uh, mobile phone apps yeah. on and on and on and so and yet there's still something wonderful about going into a theater and sitting shoulder to shoulder with other live people and watching a live event it, it's very different watching something in a theater from watching something on television exactly. I'm glad you brought up digitization because one of the themes that we talk about so much on our podcast is how digital 
um, spaces are evolving media industries like film and TV. That's one of the prevailing themes. So um, I'm glad you brought that up to kind of talk about how that's affected the theater because, you know, you might not think on the, on the main level that it would because theater is a place where you have to go, but it kind of seems, what you're how, saying is it affects it in getting the people there? That's right. How we communicate with an audience used to be buying a, a print ad in the New York Times mm-hmm. or New York Magazine or something. We haven't stopped altogether doing that, but much more we're pushing out messaging on Facebook and sending out Twitter messages. We're doing a lot of what are called e-blasts, which are, you know, direct mail, not spam, but mail that's targeted to people that want the kinds of information. So you information. target your mailers to specific people in your audience? Or, const- or groups or of people. Groups of people. Playbill Online mm-hmm. or Theater Mania or, you know, the New York Times Digital. Or, right. You know, there, there are multiple ways now from a digital standpoint to try and communicate. And then secondly, we're creating video content regularly in what, you know, has come to be called snackable videos. So relatively short videos that can be embedded in an email or pushed out on social that try and capture the spirit of the work without being literal videotapes of performance. Because this work usually begins about six weeks before the first performance ever takes place. Mm-hmm. We may not even be in rehearsal yet when we right. start doing that messaging. But we're trying to engage with the customers. And we know for people that follow things digitally that um, they're more interested in content than in advertising. And mm-hmm. so you're trying to create a, a way to reach them and give them a feeling for what the piece might be about. Mm-hmm. So before they buy a ticket there. to go That's there. Right. Yeah. One of the um, things that was brought up to me um, was how you guys have changed your subscription models over time because Manhattan Theater Club, um, a lot like the Paper Mill Playhouse, who we we just spoke to their artistic director over mm-hmm. there, um, runs on both subscription and single ticket buyers, and you mentioned this earlier. So how have you kind of changed your subscriptions? Yeah, so the old-fashioned notion of subscription mm-hmm. was fixed night, fixed seat. Mm-hmm. So you knew you were going to sit in an exact seat location. You picked your seats from a big chart, you know, often in the paper or in a three-fold mm-hmm. piece you got in the mail, like a year in advance. Right. And people can still do that with MTC, but most people don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people want to mix and match. So you can buy what we call a super series subscription of all mm-hmm. eight plays we're doing. You could buy just Broadway or just off-Broadway. Mm-hmm. You could say, I want two of these and one of those and mm-hmm. one of those. And so you can kind of create your, your own, own package, package among the eight performances that that's Manhattan right. Theater Club right. does each year. And if you're doing it at a patron level, that's our donor levels, mm-hmm. um, which would be the equivalent a little bit of sort of premium seating in the commercial world, but oh. in this case with a donation that helps support other mm-hmm. worthy parts of what we do, you can book them like you would book a house seat mm-hmm. on very short notice into prime location. So mm-hmm. there's a flexibility in that. We have something called passports or flex passes that mm-hmm. allow you to buy eight coupons, but use four of them for one show and two of them for another show mm-hmm. rather than... Oh, so instead of buying like a fixed amount of tickets at each show, you get eight tickets to any MTC show. That's right. There are a few okay. little regulations to keep... Mm-hmm everybody from trying to come to one play. But, right. But you can mix them up, and you can mm-hmm. take more to one and less to another one. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. That's kind of a different way of seeing subscriptions that right. I've seen before. So it tries to be flexible. And, mm-hmm. 
Um, and so for a younger millennial audience where the S word is maybe a turn off, uh, think of it as uh, S stands for selecting or, mm-hmm. or finding a way to organize your way to come without having to have rigid rules. So from what I understand, one of your roles is in kind of developing that audience. So how do you kind of work with a younger audience to, or kind of your general? You talked a little bit about this, but let, let's talk specifically about your younger audience. How do you kind of work with them to kind of foster, you know, a love of the theater well, among them? A few things. One, I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher for my whole career, you know, both at Columbia and Yale at the moment. I love being around young people, and and my partner Lynn feels much the same way. Mm-hmm. On the artistic side, we've mentored a lot of people over the years. So you get out of the way of young people that you've hired to do some of this work. So I'm not invited to the 30 under 30 parties because <laughs> I don't qualify, but mm-hmm. I support our need to be doing it, right. and I'm... Uh, thrilled and a cheerleader for the folks in our marketing office that assemble those nights or the young patrons program in the development office, which is a similar kind of program for young donors to be cultivated. Oftentimes we're able to get younger members of the cast to do video shout outs. Mm -hmm. When we did Constellations, for example, Jake Gyllenhaal and Ruth Wilson were thrilled with the young people in the program and when they couldn't add another week to the sold-out run, they offered to do three extra performances if we devote half of the seats Mm -hmm. to the 30 Under 30 program. And so they did a selfie and pushed (laughs) it out, and we sold out 1,000 seats at $30 in 24 hours. Wow. Yeah, no, I I saw Constellations thanks to the 30 Under 30 program. So that kind of sense of being flexible and letting other people take the lead is, I think, part of the answer to this. Mm -hmm. And when we interviewed Russ Collins of the Michigan Theater, which is a nonprofit art house theater in Ann Arbor, where uh, both Amanda and I are based, Mm -hmm. he talked about how the Michigan Theater is community-based, mission-driven. That's the phrase he used. So how would you apply that phrase to the work the Manhattan Theater Club does? Uh, I say we're mission-driven in a community that's ever expanding. Okay. So, you know, our mission is pretty straightforward. You know, we're trying to innovate. Um, we, we are committed to new work. You know, we're encouraging, we're nurturing, we're educating. So in addition to the actual plays that are going on behind the scenes, there's a major amount of artistic development work. We have a series of commissions through the Bank of America to more senior writers, to the through the Sloan Foundation to writers on art and science um, and to some very young writers who are just beginning their career. We're spending over a million dollars a year in the school systems, in our education program, including with at-risk students, incarcerated students on Rikers Island and elsewhere. Yeah, Um, I was sent um, some information about a specific program. Stargate. Stargate, thank you. That's a prison release program in which over the summer, starting up very shortly again this year for, I think, the fourth or fifth year Mm -hmm. is a program in which we're paying $10 an hour minimum wage um, and bringing teenagers Mm -hmm. who have been court-involved, as we would say, who have been involved with the judicial system to come and be here for the summer in residence and to work with some pretty amazing writer-directors to help them tell their own stories about the challenges in their lives and how the theater can help give them 
a proper channel to vent their anger, frustration, but also to celebrate their hopes and dreams and aspirations. It's a wonderful program. It is. So those kinds of things are a part of who we are. We're a mm-hmm. teaching hospital. I talked about that before. Right. We have an ongoing internship program. We're mm-hmm. trying to run a very diverse internship program to, to reach as wide a group of future professionals as we can. And then, of course, it's about the plays themselves and supporting them without it having to be all about profitability. And I say that with no disrespect to our colleagues in the commercial theater. They're doing you know, important work, too, but we're, we're different for that. I mean, let, let's get into that a little bit more. You know, how do you see yourself being specifically different from your commercial colleagues? So they, as you said to me, have to make a profit, or at mm-hmm. least try to make a profit, and they're doing these plays one at a time um, with that as its purpose. We're trying to present a whole season of work. We're committed to taking risks on new writers because we have a very small 150-seat studio at Stage 2. That can be very different, very flexible, very simple production values, like the piece Fulfillment Center by Abe Kugler that's running now. Um, our middle-sized house, Cost of Living, mm-hmm. you know, 300-seat space, has got a nine-week run mm-hmm. of an important piece uh, with a physically challenged group and, and an amazing yeah, story. One person has actually has cerebral palsy Palsy. playing a person with cerebral palsy and one person is an amputee actually playing an amputee. So that work is important. And then, you know, on Broadway, we're doing work by major writers. That work stands alongside the work the commercial folks are doing. But in aggregate, that's a very different mission Mm -hmm. from putting plays on one at a time. And... You know, I know we're running up on time here, so my last question for you today is, when you look to the future, what are your goals for either growing or continuing to develop the Manhattan Theatre Club as an organization? I think, first of all, you know, I'm thrilled to be working all this time with Lynn Meadow. She's an extraordinary artist in her own right. She has nurtured a great artistic team. Um, The institution turns 50 in 2020. Um, It's very exciting. We continue to want to grow and to have more ability to nurture the kind of work we're doing, to to nurture new audiences in the schools program, to reach larger audiences on the main stage, and um, as well diversify, you know, voices for future generations coming up through our schools and internship programs and, and with the kind of work we put on our stages. All right. Well... Barry, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us here. Thank you so much for joining us on Media Business Matters. Oh, thank you, Alex. I'm thrilled to have spent the time with you. I encourage people to come and see us. And that's it for this week's edition of Media Business Matters. If you want to learn more about Media Business Matters, you can go to amandalots.com, which has a full archive of our episodes and more information about the show. You can have new episodes of Media Business Matters delivered to you as soon as they're released by subscribing to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store by going to play.google.com music. You can find more about the Manhattan Theatre Club at manhattantheaterclub.com, and you can follow them on Twitter at mtc underscore nyc. The production of Prince of Broadway begins previews at the Samuel J. Friedman Theatre on August 3rd. Amanda's on Twitter at DrTVLots, and you can find me at Alex Zintner. 
That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. Thank you all so much for listening. We'll be back soon.